Welcome, everyone, to the Towards Wholeness podcast, where we are offering steps that people can take to live into wholeness, spirit and soul and body. We're glad that you're joining us today. And my guest today is a very good friend. We're actually in the same room, which is a little unusual in this time of uh, social distancing and the coronavirus, but it's a privilege to have Skip Lee as my guest today. Skip is a longtime resident of Seattle, the leader and founder of a law firm, and also a very good friend. We meet regularly for a meal, and I kind of view him as a mentor because he's older than me and has generously invested his wisdom in my life. I count that as a privilege. And so, Skip, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. It's good to have you. Thank you, Richard. Wonderful to be here. Uh, You have a calling, and everyone does. But I think one of the interesting questions that people are asking who are, particularly people who are young, are asking the question, how do I find my calling? And so many of the guests who are on a podcast, I want to begin by asking about the evolution of your calling. How did you end up doing what you do? Well, if we make a calling one does as a profession or business, I came by it in kind of an indirect way. I studied political science in college, thinking I'd become a political science professor at the college level. Went to graduate school after finishing undergrad and was well on my way to a master's degree and before a PhD when I realized that the profession of political science was taking a quantitative and just a numerical turn Mm. that you see in what politics is today. Like polls and such. Polls and things, yes. And it was very dissatisfying to me because what I was interested in about political science was the politics, the history, the economics, and the philosophy. And it seemed that the profession of political science was going away from that. The discipline was taking a different road. I was very unhappy. And through a good friend who was on the same fellowship program I was on in grad school, he, uh, I found out he was concurrently ro- enrolled in law school. And one night I looked at his, through his law books and I realized this is what I've wanted all along. Hmm. As I look through the cases decided by either the state Supreme Courts or the U.S. Supreme Court, this is history. This is policy. This is uh, logic. This is philosophy. This is economics. It has all of what I Hmm. was interested in. So I switched to law school. As we know now, too, those decisions that you read about are not academic. Those are the decisions that affect... Oh, yes. Everyday life. The daily lives of all of us. Yeah. It's very practical. It, it, uh, people think that law school is learning laws by rote. No, it's really understanding the policy underlying the law, why the law is the way it is mm. and the way it touches everyday lives. So I switched to law school, came back to the University of Washington Law School, graduated, and I've can't tell you how what a blessing it has been to be in this profession. I still love the profession after all these years. That's amazing. And you started your own firm eventually. Why did you decide to start your own firm? Uh, I had just finished three and a half years working with the governor, Governor Dan Evans, as his legal counsel. And when I finished that, I was still a relatively young man. I was right around 30 or 31, and I thought I'd so much like to be my own boss. I have an entrepreneurial streak about me, 
And I thought, let's just try this. And so I just started on my own, just as one lawyer, and then eventually met people who really wanted to join me. And that's how the firm started. And that was how long ago? That was, I started the firm in 1977. Wow. So that's been, uh, that's been 43 years ago. So it's, you've had a yeah. significant impact on our city, I know, well, in amazing it, ways. It's amazing. I mean, I'm amazed at how the firm has grown and uh, the people we have in the firm. It's just uh, a tremendous blessing for me in my life. In your, in your personal life, meanwhile, uh, during that period that the law firm was growing, you did something that I don't find done very often. The Passright Church is, as you know, urban, located in the heart of Seattle. It's not uncommon for a young couple to get married, and then once they have children, to move out to the suburbs to establish their long-term career. You were married, you moved out, and then you moved back in. And that doesn't happen very often. Tell me a little bit about why that happened, because I think it's significant in setting up some of our further conversation later on. Yeah, my my wife at that time, uh, my longtime uh, wife, Sid, I lost her in 2016. But uh, we lived on Mercer Island at the time. We were building our family, raising children. But there was a point at which both of us felt uneasy and restless. Hmm. It was a restlessness neither of us understood, and we hardly even talked about it because we didn't realize the other person also felt the same way. But then uh, in 1992, I had a chance to speak to the student body at Seattle Pacific University, where I went. I'm an alumnus of Seattle Pacific. And after my speech, I was surrounded by the students, two, three deep, and they just peppered questions at me. And so there was this, this exchange that went on. I think I spoke for about 30 minutes, and, but this exchange went on for about 45 minutes. And afterwards, as Sid and I were driving home, I told her what a stimulating time that was. That was probably one of the times I enjoyed most for a long, long time. And we talked about the fact that it was students. Hmm. And it occurred to me at that time that students were one population that were still asking questions. And this restlessness that I had in me really was because I was part of a community that no longer asked questions. We lived in a wonderful place on Mercer Island, had great friends, great church, but by and large, the population did not ask questions. Students were still asking questions because they hadn't settled into their lives yet. So Sid said, why don't we move? She suggested it. She subsequently told me that she regretted having said <laughs> that. But we immediately began to look for a house in the university district to move and found a house where we live now with my wife now, Liz. It's now been 28 years since that move from wow. Mercer Island to the university district. And, you know, we live a block and a half from campus. We have students all around us. And that life has been tremendously fulfilling, just being with students, interacting with them, learning from them, and hopefully teaching them a few things too. There's often uh, a perceived age gap that prevents older people from 
wanting to mentor or be involved in students' lives. I find in the church I lead, because we have many young people, young people wanting mentors, and there are actually more people wanting older voices in their lives than I'm able to find older voices to speak into their lives, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering why, from your perspective, older folks are reticent to jump in and begin investing in mentoring relationships or younger people. I think our culture has created generation gaps. I don't think generation gaps need be. I think our culture has emphasized, particularly in American culture, has emphasized youth, newness, new ideas. So once a person has reached a certain stage or reached a certain age, you start thinking, young people don't want to listen to me. Mm. And if you have adult children, you realize that you know there was a point at which in their lives as teenagers or something, they stopped listening. Yeah, And you've basically said all you can say to them, and the kids stop listening. And it's really good to find other people who can speak into their lives. Well, what I found is exactly what you just said. Young people want to have older people speak to them, to talk to them and they want to hear experience. Uh, they want, they really hunger for help in finding their calling or finding a direction in life or the issues of life. So I've encouraged friends who are much older than students just to say, give it a try. I think you'll find you not only enjoy it yourself, but I think you'll find the students very responsive to you. So, and I think that that has happened. I'm a part of a group called Vision 16. We have a lot of students living in houses. We have small groups and we have a good 40 adult mentors for small groups, ranging from mid-20s to people in their 70s. Wow. They mentor young people through these small groups and they're delighted. They come back every year. They they look forward to it again. So they found out that this is the case. I think one of the things that helps me in this uh, mentoring is giving myself permission not to have all the answers, if that makes sense. In other words, I know that I still have internal struggles and questions, and my own faith is still being formed. And it's tempting at times to say, man, because I haven't yet achieved the summit of spirituality. I don't want to replicate my weaknesses in others. And so then I withdraw. But I don't think that's from God. I think that's a sense of shame and condemnation because we will never make it to the summit. And so I find it encouraging when I'm able to walk with younger people and they know some of my own story to see that we're still walking together. So there's a sense of mutuality in it, isn't there? There certainly is. Stories, life stories mean a great deal. And in our community, our uh, student and adult community in the U District, that's a big part of the interaction is telling life stories because we are all learning. And that restlessness that I felt and that Sid felt on Mercer Island was because we felt we had stopped learning. Yeah. That we were in a community that felt that they had all the answers. And I find that, uh, well, I'm, I'm always telling this, the young students, don't look for all the answers. Think it through, come up with answers. But there is no, there are very few right answers that I find. There are lots of good answers. And the right answer, if you're always looking for the right answer, you may not find it very often. So. Right. God leads you to 
find an answer that's appropriate for that time, that may change. We all change as we grow older. Yes. The other thing that I find is young people bring a perspective that I need. In other words, I'm learning from them as much as hopefully they're learning something from me. They have a perspective. You know, in architecture, when firms are hiring, it may be the same in law. I know that they will say, some older gentlemen will say, one of the reasons that we hire young architects is because they think that we can do things that we who are older think can't be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in other words, they, they've learned in a different school and they have a different view of what's possible. And so we who are older need that as well, right? How do, how do we who are older maintain the humility to learn from yeah. those who are young? Culture, are, I'm a student of culture. I'm a student of our culture, the American culture, as well as cultures around the world, because I grew up around the world. I cannot possibly understand this culture without the young people around me. Precisely. Because they're the ones who tell me, okay, I'm always asking, what movies are you seeing? Right. What TV shows are you seeing? A couple of years ago, I was told that Black Mirror was something that a lot of them were watching and discussing afterwards. So I started watching Black Mirror. My gosh. (laughs) Some of the things I came across there, I realized I would never have watched this show if it hadn't been for the fact that I knew that a lot of my younger friends were watching it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So your curiosity has helped create receptivity, I bet, on the part of younger people. I know uh, years ago... There was a couple here, and we were celebrating their 50th anniversary publicly in in the church. And I asked a question of the couple. I said, what's the key to such a long marriage? And he he was rather stern. And he said, divorce is never an option. And so we've we've just, we closed the door on divorce, and we're still together. And I... Uh, asked a, a college student who was attending at the time, I said, what do you think of that? And she said, that was terrifying to me because I don't want to just be married because there's no divorce. Mm. I want intimacy. Mm. And I hadn't heard that as one growing up in my generation. My dad said exactly that to me. He said, divorce mm. is not an option. So, I, you know, we learned to hang in there, but then we learned from a younger generation, oh, maybe there's more to it than just yes. not divorcing. Maybe intimacy matters. I don't know if I have learned that other than through the young people. Yes. Uh, yeah. Young, young people have a natural curiosity. And I think as we get older, we tend to lose that curiosity because our minds get too filled. So, yes, I can tell you that since living in the U District, I've never felt the restlessness that I did. That's amazing. When I lived on Mercer Island. Another chapter in your life that is, I think, incredibly significant in this moment of social tensions being so high in our culture is something started developing you that led ultimately to a, to a significant ministry in Central America. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how, in addition to your vocation and calling, you've developed this kind of core that drives much of what you do? Well, that was when I was still a young man, and uh, I was, I think, 32 years old at the time. Uh, young kids hadn't even had all our kids yet. I had spent six years in Latin America as a young boy, spoke Spanish fluently. I still do speak mm. it fluently. And I, I wondered, what did God give me that background for? Here I am in Seattle, 
as a practicing lawyer, working on a number of different things, very little in the way of anything had to do with Latin America. Played soccer in Latin America, so I was playing adult soccer in the leagues, men's leagues up here, uh, speaking Spanish to some of my Hispanic teammates and things like that. But that was about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, one day I I read in the Wall Street Journal where land reform had failed miserably in in El Salvador. Mm. This is in 1982, and that it because of the failure, it had become a cause, another prompting cause of the just brutal civil war that was going right. on in that country. Because land is such an important issue to the poor in uh, in Central America and all of Latin America too, and around the world for that matter. So I thought, why do we always wait for governments to do uh, land reform? Isn't there another way? And mm-hmm. I heard this Argentinian preacher, Juan Carlos Ortiz, he came through Mercer Island Covenant Church and spoke and he he just uh, he was talking about the kingdom parables and he took a huge detour. He said, you know, this afternoon I was reading in the paper about the United States government sending hundred million dollar arms package to the Central American countries to fight the communists, the Marxists, the communists. And he said that's such a shame because with that kind of money we could buy up all the land in Central America, give it to the poor, and you get rid of the communists. Hmm. That got me to thinking because. I'd sit sitting in the congregation. I was thinking, you know, that's obviously a highly simplistic answer. But uh, instead of the government buying all that land and giving it to the poor, which is land reform, mm-hmm. why don't we do it privately? Why can't we, those of us who follow Jesus, the body of Christ, don't we have the resources to buy land, to help the poor get the land? Anyway, that got me off to thinking about this concept, and it was just really, I couldn't let it go. Hmm. And that led to trips later on that year to Guatemala to explore the feasibility of what I call private land reform. Hmm. And that eventually led to what is today Agros International. It's an organization, nonprofit organization based right here in Seattle, where we buy land and then have poor rural farmers <clears throat> in Central American countries come onto the land, farm the land. We build houses for them, with them, mm. and eventually as they start getting harvests, they pay us back for the land. Mm. Most other aspects of the program are gifts, but the land is a component where we ask them to repay us. That gives them dignity. It's not just a handout. Correct. It's hard, hard work. And they understand that. We tell them it's hard work. Most of them cannot even think of owning land on their own. Wow. That's kind of an impossible dream. So it's not just money. There's a whole mindset change that needs to happen on the part of those who are receiving the work that you're doing. Yeah, there is significant mindset change because it takes them a lot of effort to pay us back, too. But they do. I mean, we've done this successfully now. We have, we're up to about 44, 45 villages. Most of those villages, the people have paid for their land. They, they have titles to their land. So it's made a significant difference in their lives, in, in Latin American countries, in Central American countries. If you own your own land, your family doesn't go to bed hungry at night. And they, who, they who owns the land? Does the 
does just the father own the land or does the family own the land? How does that we uh, Agros buys the land at, at the outset, so the title is in Agros. But as they pay for the land, then we give them titles to their parcels. And we usually, we make it a point that when we hand over the title, it's in the name of both husband and wife, both father and mother. And that's, that's uh, it's not revolutionary, but that's quite a change from where women did not have ownership to land, only the men. I think that's very significant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I read Half the Sky by Nicholas Kristof from the New York mm. Times, and that book is about women and global disempowerment, essentially. So bringing women to the table in that economics probably will have a positive long-term impact yeah, on I, shaping the culture. I'll just tell you a story of one land title I got to hand out these land title ceremonies are wonderful things a whole family they everyone dresses up it is a huge affair they dress up in their best clothes and we call them up one by one family by family in this one case in guatemala it was a widow mm. she's tiny she's under five feet tall uh she illiterate but she had finished paying off her land and wow. so she was getting the title and she didn't even speak spanish she spoke her own ishil native tongue. And so even though I was speaking Spanish, I had to have it translated to her and then her Ishil translated to me. And so the translator said, Mr. Lee, she wants you to read the title. Mm. I said, read it, read the whole thing, because Central American land titles are three, four pages of terse prose. Oh, wow. Single space. Yeah. Just legalese all over the place. And he, he talks to her and she's, yes, she would like you to read the whole thing. So I took about 10 minutes to read this mm. entire deed. She listened intently. The whole audience listened intently. Mm. This was so meaningful to them. And at the end, I handed it to her. And you could just see the glow on her face, wow. realizing that her name yes. was on that title. That's a revolutionary shift in her life, <laughs> yes. but, but part of a cultural shift. I'm interested in your thoughts on how what you've seen down there through Agros has changed or informed your thinking about poverty in America. Because we're, I mean, it's a big thing right now, particularly in the city you and I live in. It feels like it's harder for a middle class to live within the city, and there's a lot of poverty and wealth concentrated at the top. How does all that you've experienced inform American poverty? Are there comparisons? Yes, the poor are poor everywhere. And yes, we certainly have too many, too many people who are homeless in our own city and all around the U.S. But what I found, what I've found through the Agros experience 38 years now, is poverty was a concept to me. Helping the poor was a conceptual idea for me that I was enamored with mm -hmm. at the very outset. Yes. This whole agros thing of buying land with private funds and then turning it over to the poor, uh, private land reform. It was all conceptual. It was something I was fascinated with as a lawyer even because I worked on a lot of real estate large real estate transactions as a lawyer. It was conceptual until I started traveling to Guatemala, which is where we started this work, 
and meeting the poor, talking to the poor, and poverty then had a human face to it. Mm. It was a person. It was a relationship. And over the years, that has become a core part of my soul is the friendship, the relationships with the people we have helped through Agros. There are any number of them in these villages that I can, they call me by first name, I call mm. them by first name when I, when I go to visit them. So to me, poverty is helping someone, helping someone who's poor is not just handing them money so that they can afford things. It's helping them restore relationships that yes. are completely broken in their lives. Yes. It's not just personal relationships. It's relationships to their, their, their culture, yep. their economic relationships. All of these things are broken. And the way back is to help them through to mend those relationships, but it starts with a personal relationship. And that's very applicable to American poverty, in my opinion, because when we begin to move away from blanket policy statements, and as we do here at Bethany, minister to individuals yes. in the homeless shelter, in the community yes. meal, in the food bank ministry that we have, and begin to hear stories, we realize that inherent in every story are broken relationships. Yes. There, it, can be, it can be domestic violence. It can be broken relationship by virtue of an addictive behavior to drugs or alcohol. But there's a broken relationship. And this is, I think, why Mother Teresa said, when I travel around America, it seems like the poorest country in the world if poverty is relational. And it is. Yes. And, and we, because of our idol of individualism, we climb our own mountain and we get up there and then we hold on. And what people need before anything isn't a check. It's dignity that comes from relationships. Yes. It's someone who knows your name. Precisely. And calls you by name. It's someone you call by first yeah. name. Uh, that, I think, is a huge part of it that all of us can do. That's yes. not just limited to people who have money to give away. That anybody can enter into a relationship with someone who is much more a homeless person or whatever. So that, then, is uh, one of the great discoveries that I will cherish through this Agros experience is friendship with the poor friendship with people who have so much less than I do. I mean, it's, it's just, you don't even want to quantify that yes. because they have basically nothing. The and people who we start helping through Argos have nothing, zero. They have the clothes on their back and that's just about it. Many wow. of them don't even have shoes. Wow. So, yeah. And then this, all of this of course is informed by your faith. What, what in the Bible, what does the Bible have to say about poverty? Oh, uh, it's just all throughout. You know, in the Old Testament, you hear constant admonition to help the widow, the orphan, the alien. In that admonition is helping people who cannot help themselves, yeah. the widow, the orphan, the alien. It's not that they don't want to help themselves. It's just that they're incapable of helping themselves. And so the poor, you say, there was a book 20, 25 years ago, written by someone who said, the poor have capital. They just need to mobilize that capital. And I thought, you've never been out there, have you, right. with the poor? Right. You know, what capital? They have no economic capital. They have no personal capital. They have no social capital. you got to be kidding mm. to say that the poor have capital. Sure, the poor and the poor tell me, I have hands, I have feet, I have... 
a strong body, I can work. Yes, you can do that. But generations of poor have worked themselves to death and not gotten any better off. Mm. So the idea is in, in helping the poor, what I've understood is you help them at least restore some social capital, mm. some relationship mm. capital. And then you can start working on the other aspects of poverty in that person's life. We're all poor in some way or other, but I'm talking about the materially poor. Yep. And I think the, the scriptures address the materially poor. Certainly, the, the scriptures address those poor in spirit as well. Yes. But the materially poor, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr it is, who said, you know, God doesn't just care about the poor. He's partial towards the poor. That's exactly right. He favors the poor. And I've thought about that often. Why is that? In the New Testament, Jesus, in Jesus' message, he was always among the poor. Those were his people. Yes. He was always among the poor, helping them, healing them, lifting them up in all sorts of ways. And then one particular scripture that's made a huge difference in my life is Galatians 2, the passage of Galatians 2, where Paul and Barnabas have gone up to Jerusalem. Paul is seeking approval of his ministry in Asia Minor because he's been criticized right and left exactly. for working with by the everyone. Gentiles by everyone. And so he finally he meets with what he calls the pillars of the church, Peter, James, and John, and describes what he's doing. They listen to him carefully, and then Paul says, they heard me, they extended to me the right hand of fellowship and encouraged me to continue what we were doing with the Gentiles while they continued to do what they did with the Jews. Only, he says, only they asked me to remember the poor. Mm -hmm. That was the only stipulation. The apostles, the pillars of the church, put on Paul's ministry. The only stipulation. The I only stipulation. They did not talk about doctrine. Yeah. They didn't talk about circumcision, which was controversial at the time. They didn't talk about politics. Do you favor Rome? Do you favor the zealots who are trying to, trying to overthrow exactly. Rome? There was none of that. Only that I should remember that we should remember the poor, which I was glad to do. I love that. The kingdom rises above kind of the noise of partisanship yes. that is in our present culture. Yes. So that has made a deep impression on me. And, you know, I look, at, I look around us today. Within the church, outside the church, we're putting litmus tests on everyone we know. Yes. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Especially in this time. There's all sorts it of litmus tests. It feels worse than ever to me. Very sharp, very, very strong, passionate litmus tests. Yeah. If you don't meet up to this, I don't want to be your friend. Yeah. I don't want to worship with you. I don't want to be in the same house with you. Where does remembering the poor come in? I seldom hear it. Yes. I don't hear it from politicians. I don't hear it from people judging who they should vote for. Mm-hmm. And yet here, the Apostle Paul, in his experience with the pillars of the church, was given only one condition to his work, and that's to remember the poor. Wow, that has made such a huge difference in my life. Because I find that when I talk to people, and I talk to them about agros, all the barriers come down. That's right. Political barriers, 
religious barriers, whatever, social barriers come down because people, they hear the story and it's a compelling story yes. of how the poor are transformed into landowners and they can, yes. they can prosper then. That breaks down barriers. I wish more. I tell this to the young people I'm, I'm with all the time. This is a huge message. Remember the poor. All of these other things, you, you want to get involved in these other things, that's fine. But there's no better common ground to work with people than to work for the poor, help I mean, the poor, befriend the poor. As Galatians 2 says, the only thing. The only thing. I love that. Well, Skip, I want to thank you for your investment in my life, and thank you for taking time today. Your wisdom is a gift to me, and I think the things that you've shared today are so important for people not only trying to find a particular calling, but to, to hear this message of investing in those who don't have, investing in the poor to, to such an end that this is what it means to be part of God's kingdom. So thank you. It's been great to be with you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for the invitation to be here. And well, I appreciate you. It's been great. I love our friendship. It will be good to hear from the rest of you. I hope you'll join us next time on the Toward Wholeness Podcast. <laughs>